0: Listen, church, God does not want worship to be just something that you do on Sunday. God does not want worship to be just something that you do when you come through those back doors. God wants worship in your life and my life to to be something that becomes the habit and the practice of our life. Whether we are in this building, or we're out out of the workplace, or wherever we may be driving down the road, God wants our worship to be a lifetime
1: practice. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed.
0: Chapter Four again. We're not talking about the woman at the well again. We we covered her for three weeks, so we covered her pretty well. Uh, but I do want to use one verse that Jesus Christ said to this lady as a springboard to what we're going to talk about this evening and possibly next Wednesday night as well, as we bring our study on, on worship, the ultimate priority, to a conclusion. Um, and then we're going to go over, uh, when we finish this, we'll probably go into another another book to look at together. But John chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus, in his discourse with this young woman, uh, said to her in verse 21, "Woman," and again we said to you last time together that that was not a term of disrespect. It was just like he looked at his mother on, in John 19 and said, "Woman," when, uh, from the cross." It wasn't a sign of disrespect. It was actually, in, in first century Israel, it was very respectful. Uh, address. is almost like saying ma'am. So so Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Father, we ask you tonight to teach us your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start this evening with a couple of quotes about worship. First one's from R.C. Sproul. He said this, quote, The single most important thing to understand about worship is that the only worship that is acceptable to God is worship that proceeds from a heart that is trusting in God and in God alone. A.W. Tozer says, While God wants us to worship Him, we cannot worship Him just any way we will. The one who made us to worship Him has decreed how we shall worship him. He accepts only the worship which he himself has decreed. John MacArthur said, If worship does not change us, it has not been worship. And then finally, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, All places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. The pastor went to see a man in in his church that had not been to church in a very long time. And this man, when the pastor got to this man's house, this man was sitting next to a fireplace, enjoying the warmth of the fire and and the warm glow of the coals in the fireplace. The cold, the weather was of course cold outside, but it was nice and warm around those hot coals in that fire. And the pastor pleaded with that gentleman to be more faithful to church, but the man did not seem to get the message. And so the pastor took the tongs and he pulled the screen back on the fireplace and he began to take the hot coals that were in that fireplace and on the hearth set them apart from one another to where they were not touching and then he just sat back for a moment and just talked about anything, but just ignored those coals for a moment. And then, just a matter of moments, those coals had turned cold. And the pastor looked at that man and said, "Quote: This is what's happening in your life. As soon as you isolate yourself from God's people, the fire goes out. The fire goes out." When Jesus said something to someone in his ministry one-on-one, the message was difficult to evade. The woman at the well was visibly affected by the realization that Jesus Christ knew all about her sin. Her conscience was pricked. Her soul was pierced. And she, at that very moment, began to feel the heavy weight of conviction And immediately when she felt that heavy weight of conviction, there was immediately a desire to make things right. Because when she was brought face to face with her sin, the very first thing that she wanted to know is, how am I supposed to worship? What is the right way to worship? Her first thought was that I want to do this correctly. Now admittedly, she was confused about how to do it, because she had been raised in a plethora of ways and forms of worship. No doubt, probably a plethora of different gods in whom she was told was a proper god to worship. So she was confused, no doubt. But she wanted to know how to worship. And I want to draw our study on worship, the ultimate priority, to a conclusion by going over some basic principles once again with us on how to worship and I want to remind you church tonight that worshiping is not raising holy hands to the heaven is it now that may be worship I'm not saying that's not and I'm not saying we don't welcome that here because that's definitely biblical if you're afraid to raise your hand because of our charismatic friends and you're afraid of the association, don't worry about the association here. If the Spirit of God leads you to do it, you help yourself. But only if the Spirit of God leads you to do it. But that's not necessarily worship, is it? Being all emotional inside and crying a few tears and doing this or doing that, that could be worship, but it's not necessarily worship, is it? Not necessarily. Leaving on an emotional high is not necessarily worship. And I want, I want to go over with you tonight, again, some things about worship. Worship, folks, is not about heaven coming down, is it? If, if the level of your worship and my worship is like that pastor told me so many years ago, if the level of our worship is heaven coming down, then we don't have a clue about what worship is all about. Because heaven, is, worship is not heaven coming down, but worship is glory going up. Glory going up. Because we worship God to glorify God, not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But let's, let's look at these things about worship. There, there's nothing new that I'm going to give you tonight, but maybe a different twist, maybe look at something a little bit different. Number one, let's look at the place of worship. The place of worship. When Jesus said these words to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem, worship the Father. And that statement, for anybody who's thinking about it, immediately raises some interesting questions. First of all, we might ask ourselves, Is the place of worship, is the place of worship, of really any concern at all. And if the place of worship does not matter, then what was the purpose of the temple? If worship is not confined to a particular place, why was such a unique place built? Why do we worship in a building? One thing is crystal clear from Jesus' words that he gave to this woman is that the old system is dead, Right? The old covenant is dead. The place to worship in this context of John 4, the place to worship is not Mount Gerizim and the place to worship is not Jerusalem. In other words, it's not on the man-made temple on Gerizim and it's not in the temple in Jerusalem. The old ceremonies are gone. The old rituals are gone. Because listen, church, it's important that you and I realize that the temple was only a resident symbol. The temple was never intended to be the permanent resident worship center. Because the symbol was, one of its main purposes was to stimulate the people uh, to have a heart of worship. Because God wanted worship to be a part of people's lives. Listen church, God does not want worship to be just something that you do on Sunday. God does not want worship to be just something that you do when you come through those back doors. God wants worship in your life and my life to, to be something that becomes the habit and the practice of our life. Whether we are in this building or we're out, on the, out of the workplace or wherever we may be driving down the road, God wants our worship to be a lifetime practice. You know, you and I would have a lot better attitudes when we got into bad traffic. If our lifetime was, if our lives were lifetimes of worship, wouldn't we? When things went wrong in the home, you and I would be able to handle those things a whole lot better if our life was a lifetime of worship and we did not, uh, set aside worship only for coming in this building. Folks, let me, let me uh, appendix that by saying this. If you wait to worship when you get here, you will never worship. Because your worship must start out there before you come in here. But the temple was a symbol of the reality. And what was the reality? A life of worship. A lifetime of worship. A lifetime of giving glory to God. A lifetime of acknowledging God. A lifetime of lifting up Praise to God not only by what you say, but a lifetime of worship is lifting praise to God by how you and I live. Don't go out there and live like the devil, come inside the church, speak in tongues and think that you've worshiped. We're speaking in tongues I didn't worship anyway, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Don't live like the world out there, come in here, think you're going to raise holy hands to the Lord because you get all emotionally stirred up by the, by the good music that James and Rebecca play and think that you're really worshiping God because that's not worship at all. Worship starts out there before you ever come in here. And if you're not worshiping there, you'll never worship here. And that's the problem with our society today, isn't it? People come to church, they get all decked out for church, and they think they're actually doing something. But when they go outside those doors, they live like the world and do not ever one time lift a holy, a godly life up to the one that they say that they worship. Symbol is gone. The temple is gone. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. And just like the sacrificial system, the temple was a symbol. Just like Sabbath, the Sabbath was a symbol. Not something to remain. I want you to notice a verse, though, on this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Because there's something, there's a, there's a couple of dimensions here that I want you to understand tonight, okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying here that every believer, every believer, is a living breathing temple in which God dwells, right? There's no doubt about that. Every believer is a temple, is a living, breathing temple in which God lives. That means that since you and I are the temple in which God lives, that means the believers can worship anytime, anywhere. Because at any time, at anywhere. We can go into the abiding presence of God because we have the abiding presence of God living in us because we are his temple. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We are his temple. And the sphere of worship for the believer is unlimited. You know what? I'm so thankful that I don't have to come to church to worship. Let me put it to you this way. I'm so thankful that I don't have to wait to come to church. To worship, I don't have to wait to come to church to worship because the sphere of my worship is unlimited because I am you are as a believer according to Paul we are the temple where the Holy Spirit takes up his residence in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 the writer of Hebrews says having therefore brethren boldness To enter into the what? Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. And that really, folks, is the supreme reality of worship. And this is magnanimous. God has permitted us to enter into the Holy of Holies through the death of Jesus Christ. Because who could enter into the Holy of Holies in the Old Covenant? The high priest only. If anyone else was caught in the Holy of Holies, what happened? Instant death. Because why? The Holy of Holies was symbol of what was behind the curtain. The Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat where it was believed was the presence of God. And only the high priest could go into the presence of God. But when the veil in the temple wrote, like we talked about last week, Tore from top to bottom, God has permitted us to enter into the actual presence of God through the death of Jesus Christ, and you can do that, church, anytime, anywhere. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says we can come boldly into the presence of God through the death of Jesus Christ. Such a thing would never have been done under the old covenant. You could say in the old covenant, they worshiped God from a distance. They could never come into God's presence. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, the writer there says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The, old te- the people under the old covenant didn't have that assurance of faith. They couldn't draw near to God. We have been saved in order that the way to God might be open to us. We can go directly into the holy of holies and draw near with a true heart. Folks, listen, I don't know about you, but that excites me that I can go right into the presence of God. I don't have to have a priest to go into the presence of God for me. Because there is only one priest. There is only one mediator. Paul says in First Timothy 2. And that is Christ Jesus. And because he is the only true high priest, he is the only true mediator. No mere mortal man could ever be anyone else's mediator because the scripture is clear that there's only one mediator. Peter also says that you and I are our own priests before God. Wow, isn't that amazing? God took a bunch of sinners, Uh, well, I don't know about you, but God took this sinner, and not only did he save me, but Kevin, he made me a priest. And everybody in this worship center tonight that's born again, that's trusted Jesus Christ, you are a priest before God. You are your own priest. You have, you need nobody else to go into the presence of God. You go yourself, the right of Hebrew says. And by the way, you go boldly. You go boldly. You know, there's, there's so many doctrines in the Word of God that are so magnanimous for me. So they're too, they're, James, they're just too wonderful to number. And somebody asked me, what is your favorite doctrine? I couldn't, I, I, I could sooner uh, build a million worlds than tell anybody what my favorite doctrine is. The doctrine of regeneration is wonderful. The doctrine of redemption, where we have been bought back by the death of Jesus Christ, is wonderful. The doctrine of justification is wonderful. That we have been given the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ and have been declared righteous. The doctrine of propitiation, where God's wrath it, for my sin and your sin is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of the sacrifice, because of the death of Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of propitiation is wonderful. The doctrine of glorification is wonderful where one day I'll shed this old, this old frail body that his knees hurt and, and I won't have a, and I'll have a perfect body one day. I'll be free from sin, and because I'll be free from sin, I'll be free from all the frailties that the sin nature brings. But one of, the, one of the great doctrines that is so much of the time overlooked was brought to my mind today, and that is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. Because let me tell you something, folks. It's a. Let me tell you something. It is. It is. It is a far, vast difference between God saying, "Okay, Michael, you're a sinner. You don't deserve grace. But through Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, I am going to. I am going to extend to you grace. I am going to extend you uh, salvation. And I'm going to justify you. Isn't that great? I'm going to declare you righteous, and I am going to give you the righteousness of my son by faith. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But I am going to choose by my sovereign grace, and only through my sovereign grace, I am going to choose to look on you as if you lived the life of Christ, and I'm going to choose to look on him as if he lived your life. That's great, isn't it? But there's a great big difference between... God saying that to you and God saying that to me. And then God coming up to you and putting his arm around you and say, come to my table and eat. Come to my table and eat because you're one of mine. God could justify us from a distance, couldn't he? God could justify Raynell and say, Raynell, you're righteous just because I declare you to be righteous. But he could do that from a distance, but he doesn't do that. He comes up to Raynell and he puts his arm around Raynell and says, Raynell, not only are you righteous, but you're going you're to eat at my dinner table. You're going to live in my house because you're one of my children. The death of Jesus Christ, folks, did all of that. The old people in the old covenant could know nothing about that. In fact, you can look at when, when I was going through the Romans 11 with the students in the academy, we went over verses in Leviticus and Exodus where, where the, they didn't even know whether God would actually forgive them or not. When they sinned in Exodus 32, when they sinned by worshiping the golden calf, what did Moses say? I'm going to go to God and confess your sins. Perhaps he'll forgive you. So they didn't, the people under the old covenant did not even have assurances of the forgiveness of God. They could never fathom what you and I know in Christ. And they could never know what it meant to truly go into the presence of God, knowing that we are welcomed there through a new and living way anywhere at any time. Anywhere and at any time, you and I can worship God. Number two, not only do I want you to see the place of worship, but I want you to see the purpose of the worship. The purpose of worship. There's a, there's really church, there's really a dual dimension going on here. We're given access to the Father by the death of Jesus Christ in order, as I said, that we may be our own priests before God, right? And so because we are our own priests before God, we can come to His presence anytime, anywhere. However, there's another dimension. Because some people would say, great, if I can worship God anytime, anywhere, then this Sunday morning at 11 a.m., I'll be worshiping, I'll be worshiping God on the lake. Right? If I can worship God anytime, anywhere, I, I can, you know, hey, hey, if I can go to God anytime, anywhere, then this Sunday morning at 11 a.m., man, I'm going to be on the, I'm going to be on the, I'm going to be the number one tea time. I'm going to be worshiping God. But I'm going to be playing golf because the pastor said, I can worship God anytime, anywhere, because Paul said, I'm God's temple. And that's true. But there's another dimension to this, isn't it? And this, is the pl- and this is the purpose of the worship. Notice Hebrews chapter 10. You all know this verse. I'm not giving you anything so that's a surprise. Hebrews chapter 10. Paul says, let us, or the writer of Hebrews says, let us continue One another, let us consider rather one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Even though we worship individually, we also assemble for corporate worship. We also assemble for corporate worship. I gave you a quote from John Wesley Sunday morning, I believe it was. Maybe it was Sunday night, but Sunday morning. From John Wesley that said this, and I don't have a slide for this, Wichita, so don't worry about it. I'm, just, I'm flying off the cuff right now. John Wesley said, God knows nothing of solitary religion. In other words, religion is not a person by himself worshiping God by himself in his own way. Yes, there is a way, there is a dimension in where you and I have continual access to God through the death of Jesus Christ. We are our own priests before God, and we are the temple, we are the house of the Holy Spirit. That's all true. But there's another dimension that we need one another, right? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. I want you to notice that word consider or provoke. It's a compound Greek word that literally means to sharpen with intensity. It goes back to what the Old Testament says in Proverbs, I believe it is. It says, iron sharpens iron. Or maybe it's Ecclesiastes. Iron sharpens iron. And what happens is when we come together for corporate worship, we sharpen one another. We provoke one another. We sharpen one another intensely for two things. Love and what's the other? Good works. Paul said in verse 24, and you probably can't tell who I believe wrote Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider, let us provoke or stimulate, you could translate, stimulate one another to love and good works. And church, listen, both of these activities, love and good works, being stimulated to love and good works requires what? Requires being assembled together. So there is a dimension in which we worship God individually, anytime, anywhere, because I'm a priest before God, I'm the house of the Holy Spirit, but there's another dimension that says, listen, we need one another to stimulate each other to love and good works and that can only happen as we assemble together. Even though worship is not a geographical issue, that does not rule out congregational assembly in order to worship. And it also does not mean that a building cannot specifically be designed and dedicated to worship. In fact, even under the new covenant, God had a temple apart from the individual temples of the body. It was a place where people met. Notice Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul did write Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom all the what? Building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together. Together. Not separately, together, when you assemble for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And even though believers are a part of a family, God's people are linked together in a common family when we assemble. And the text speaks there in Ephesians about the church being built on a foundation. The local church then becomes the temple of God where God meets with his people. And that's why the Bible talks about, folks, individual worship. And the Bible also talks about corporate worship. Again, let me give you 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body, and he's talking about our physical bodies, our persons, our beings, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own. And there, as I said in that scripture, it's referring to individual believers. But just three chapters earlier, we saw this in our study as we're going through 1 Corinthians on Sunday night. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you and the noun you there is plural. So it's speaking about the collection of a believers within a local church. Okay. And the Bible teaches, folks, a local church. The Bible teaches a local church. Now, there, there, the Bible doesn't teach anything about a universal church. Now, there is a universal family of God, but church, nowhere in the New Testament does the term family of God in church, in the scriptures relate to the church. Okay. There is a family of God, and then there is the church meaning the salvation does not automatically place someone into the church, it places them into the family of God. In fact, the term church, let me, let me just elaborate on that just a little bit. There, there are differing views on this. Some good men have differing views on this. Uh, the, the Greek term for church is ekklesia, and uh, it, that definition would, would flatly deny any kind of universal meaning because the word for church ecclesia means an assembly an assembly how many of you have ever been in an assembly of the universal church anybody probably no one because the universal church has never assembled and so the fact is you can't have a universal church and actually call it a church because it's because it would require an assembly Give you another idea, the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that, that were left to the church. Has a universal church ever participated in those two ordinances together as an assembly? No. Because it would be impossible for the universal church to do that. Church discipline, according to Matthew 18, was pr- practiced by the local church. The universal church has never been able to practice church discipline. We have no authority to discipline somebody out of another church for sin that they're being involved in. So church discipline, as given by Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, requires a local church. In fact, of the the 27 books of the New Testament, uh, if you look at those 27 books, and you look at the writings of Paul, and you look at the writings of Luke, if you count them by chapters... Luke and Paul are are responsible for two-thirds of the writing of the New Testament. Luke only wrote Luke and Acts, but when you think, think about the chapters that were written, it's about 53 chapters. And then all the 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul. Paul wrote one third of the New Testament. Luke wrote one third of the New Testament. So those two guys are responsible for two thirds of the New Testament. And nowhere in those writings do they ever speak about a universal church, but of the, but of the 27 letters of the New Testament, most of those letters are written to local churches about local church matters. Now, if someone says if someone believes that the universal church operates within the realm of a local church, folks, listen—they're not unorthodox. Okay, someone believes in the universal church; they're not going to hell. Okay, and if, if somebody believes in the universal church, we don't, obviously we don't break fellowship over that point. That's not one. Of, that's not what I would call the drivetrain of the gospel. But it is something that I believe the New Testament teaches. And I believe with great conviction that the New Testament teaches a local church and a local assembly. Because let's be real, folks. If somebody truly believes in a universal church, then to them it doesn't really matter where you go, does it? Hey, as long as I'm going to a Bible-believing church, brother, I'm part of the universal church. I'm okay. No, that's not true. Because Paul wrote letters to churches about matters in that church. And so even though there's a universal family of God, there is a local church, that local church demands an assembly. And if you study the New Testament on the subject of the church, because there was no church in the Old Testament, then the ordinances and the other practices of the church that we are told to participate demand, demand a local church theology. Jesus said this, notice up on the screen, Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. Where are you going right now? I haven't even offended anybody yet. Look what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my what? Church. And the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. Now Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. There was one way for, it was one way to be a member of the church. What way is that? Acts chapter 2 verse 41. And they that gladly received the word were what? Baptized. And when they were baptized, that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Were they added to a universal church that included all believers of all time? Or were they added to a local church? Well, look at verse 41 again. And they gladly received the word, were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Where did they get that number? They just pulled it out of the air? No. They knew that it was 3,000 people because they were counted because they had a church membership. They had a church membership. They had a local church of 3,000 people in Jerusalem, and then in no time at all, it grew to about five thousand people. By the time you get to Acts chapter ten, and by the time you get to the epistles, the early church had grown to about twenty thousand people. That local church. And the point is, church that pray that worship is an individual form of praise, but it is also a corporate form of praise within the confines of a local church. Because local churches are the realities of the physical temple where God meets with his people. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 5, Ye also, as living stones, are built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We are living stones in Christ. And when we come together... We constitute a place of worship where God is present at home with us. So there is there is a sense in which because we are the temple of God, we can worship anytime, anywhere. First Corinthians six, but there is also a dimension Hebrews ten where we assemble to provoke or to stimulate one another to love and good works. I don't know about you folks, but there have been some times over the, over, over the years of my salvation uh, that I have not wanted to go to church. But I know y'all have never been in that position. Y'all always want to be here. But in my, in my, in my time, that I was saved in 1985, and in that time from then until now, there have been some times I didn't particularly want to go to church. Particularly, Wednesday night prayer meeting is hard, isn't it? And you don't know how much I appreciate you folks coming out on Wednesday night because you're tired. Y'all have worked hard. Uh, you say, well, you've worked hard too. No, I really haven't. Mine is mental. Mine is Mental. All right? Yours is more physical. I mean, I wouldn't want some of y'all's job. I mean, Jaina putting them them cheering on the bus. I wouldn't, you know, but anyway. And so y'all are tired. And so I appreciate y'all being here. But, uh, But I can tell you one thing, that even on those times I really didn't want to go, I really didn't want to go, boy, by the time church was over, I was so glad I went. Why? Because a fellowship with you guys has stimulated something in me. You've sharpened me in some way, shape, or form. You've made me glad that I was in the house of God. You've made me glad that I came to worship. And I trust and hope and pray that you being around other of us at times has stimulated you and, and made you glad that you were here. And so there is a dimension in which we worship individually. But there is a dimension in when we worship collectively. And just keep in mind, folks, that... Worshiping individually, now, get this, worshiping individually and worshiping collectively, corporately as a church body, is not optional. Is not optional. We are demanded both individually and corporately to worship. I praise God for the church. I praise God for Emmanuel Baptist Church. I praise God for the people that make up Emmanuel Baptist church and the people that will make up Emmanuel Baptist church, because you guys sharpen me dramatically. Okay. I think I can do this in five. Number three, the process of worship. Let's look at this real quick. One of the reasons for this study, as we said to you the first week is that many people have the wrong view of worship. Okay. First of all, worship for some worship is more ritual. Um, You know, you go into some of your, you go into some of your churches, say your Presbyterian brethren, um, and we would agree with much of them theologically, as long as they are the uh, PCA, Presbyterian Churches of America. We're not to agree so much with the USA, they're the more liberal arm, but uh, you go into your typical PCA and and, uh, they've got the ritual music, the organ music and things like that, public prayer, offering, sermon, and observance of certain ordinances, and that's okay, we do the same thing. We do the same thing except Rebecca so eloquently plays the piano for us. But we do the same thing. We have music, we have public prayer, we have an offering, we have observances of the ordinances, and we have um, a sermon. For others, and that's more ritual, but for others, worship is more relaxed. It's more relaxed. But my point is this, is that neither one may be true worship. Just because your worship is ritual, ritualistic, doesn't mean it's true worship, doesn't mean it isn't. And just because your worship is a little bit more relaxed, doesn't mean that you're truly worshiping, doesn't mean that you're not. Because worship, church, and you know this, worship is not primarily about external activities. It's not primarily about external activities. Because worship is what takes place in the heart as we adorn God, that as we adorn the God we sing about and that we pray to and that we obey. That's why I say that unless you worship God out there in the heart, you will never worship God in here. Because everybody, most everybody puts on a smile and a nice face in here. I mean, you may have been fussing at your husband or your wife all the way to church, but you, most of us are going to put a smile on and become, you know, you know, you're going to, you're going to, what are you laughing at? You're going to have war. You, and Kevin, Kevin, that's all you can do is shake your head, brother. Don't worry about her. All you can do is shake your head. That's all right. You, you, you're amongst people that love you. That's all right. We've all been there. I mean, you come to church and you're at war and then you come inside the building and you sing peace, peace, perfect peace. And you've had war all the way to church. Okay? We've all done it. Because worship must take place in the heart. Must take place in the heart. Worship is the proper spiritual response to those other activities. Because of the music, because of the observance of the ordinances, because of the sermon, because of the fellowship, I worship God because of those things, or of reality because of those things, not the activities alone per se. That is why a true worship church is not necessarily gimmickry, gimmick, gimmicks, it's not necessarily entertainment, it's not necessarily emotional manipulation. Rick Warren said in his book, 40 Days of... Uh, 40 days of purpose, that he can get anybody to the altar and make a decision for Christ by pinging on their felt needs, uh, i.e. emotional manipulation. I mean, emotional manipulation. And that's not what true worship is. Those things may draw crowds, but they don't have anything to do with authentic worship. In fact, I'll tell you this, that usually they are a deterrent to it. Music, praise, liturgy can very much so assist in the expression of a worshiping heart. But church, listen to me very clearly. Those things alone, listening to the sermon, singing, giving, participating in the ordinances, those things by themselves and those things alone will never ever turn a non-worshiping heart into a worshiping heart by themselves. But the danger is they can give a non-worshipping heart the sense that they have worshiped. Because we can be manipulated, we can manipulate ourselves. And so the critical factor is not the form of worship, but the state of the heart. So when I talk about the people, the process of worship, the process of worship starts before you ever get here, and it starts in the recesses of the heart. It starts at your emotions, the deep seated part of your emotions. And if our corporate worship is not the express, uh, indiv- not the expression of our individual worship, then our corporate worship is not acceptable. If you believe that you can live any way you please and then go to church on Sunday morning and quote-unquote get your worship on, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Because you can't live like you want to out there and think that you're going to come in here and God is going to accept your form of worship. And so what do we need to work on, folks? Well, this is an individual question that you and I need to ask ourselves individually. But corporately, what do we need to work on? We probably need to work on making sure that we're worshiping God out of a pure heart first. By confession of our sins, by faithfulness to God when we're out there. By our testimony for Christ while we're out there. What we we do throughout the whole week will have tremendous effects of the church when we come to worship on Sunday. Why do you go to church? When you meet together with the saints, is it really worship? Where do you go to church to see what you can get out of it? What's one thing you can do to try to go to church to try to get something out of it? Some people go to church because it makes them feel better about themselves. Well, I gave God my hour this week, boy. I really feel good about myself now. Or some type of you come to church and you expect to have some type of serendipitous experience that will take away every problem that you have. I actually took a man to the back room one time years and years ago and said that I he said to me, you know, at least he was honest, he said, I'm in trouble with the law, and he said, I need to get right with the big man upstairs. And the reason why so many saints continue to struggle with the sin patterns of their life is because of how they view the church. Church helps equip us for the battle, yes. Through the principles that we learn in church from God's word. So to neglect church and think that sinful patterns will be annihilated. That's just not going to be the case. We neglect church. But at the same time thinking that our sinful patterns are going to be annihilated. Basically we're trying to do it on our own. It's not going to happen. The primary focus of church is for the worship of God. Corporately. But the church It's not going to give us victory over sinful patterns if you do not take the principles of God's word into your life and into practice throughout the week. You're not going to have some type of serendipitous serendipitous epiphany when you come in here if you've never taken the principles of God's word and apply them to yourself out there. It's not going to do you any good in here. Some people go away from church. They've criticized the soloist. They've analyzed the choir. You know, Denise didn't really hit that alto note, just, just so. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't sing themselves out of a wet paper bag, but somehow they're, they're experts on the alto part of a song. I've never heard anybody say that, by the way, Denise. Or they're critical of the sermon. For too long, we've been, we've been conditioned to think that the church is here to entertain us. In fact, a man by the name of a Dutch reformer, by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, uh, that's what you'll name your next son, James. Soren Kierkegaard is a good middle name. Dutch reformer. <laughs> he said this Soren Kierkegaard said this. People have the idea, and I like this people have the idea that the preacher is an actor on the stage and they are the critics, blaming or praising him. What they do not know is that they are the actors on the stage. And he is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of their lines. And God alone is the audience, end quote. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm going in with this. Have you ever heard anyone say after attending church, oh, I didn't get anything out of church today. Maybe you felt that way. Oh, I didn't get anything out of church today. But here's a question that needs to be asked. What did you give God? What did you give God? How was your heart prepared before you got there? If you do, if you do church selfishly in order to seek a blessing, church, you've missed the point of worship. We go to church to give glory to God, not to be blessed. And an understanding of that will affect how we critique the experience. The issue is not ever whether or not I got anything out of it. Here's the question: Did you give glory to God? Did you give glory to God? Because blessing comes as a response to work, true worship. If you worship God properly in church, you don't need to be critical of the sermon. You don't need to be critical of the soloist. If you gave glory to God, you're going to be blessed because you were there able to give glory to God. And if you are blessed or not blessed, it's not because of poor music or poor preaching, although they can be obstacles, but it's because of a selfish heart that did not prepare to worship God out there when you got here. John MacArthur said this, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or they are not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. We need both. You You and I need to practice worshiping God six days a week out there so that we can be prepared to worship God when we come in here on the Lord's day. There is individual worship, There is corporate worship, and the Church of Jesus Christ needs both.
1: Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross through the church to the world until Christ come. God bless you.